God let me be a part of a church that for years sang that song that we just sang, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. May it be a sweet, sweet sound. We sang that almost every Sunday night as kind of a theme song in our worship service. And I, I don't think I had sung it for years, so thank you so much. That It took me back to another fellowship that God let me be a part of where we made that song our cry on Sunday night. And it is a great worship song. So to the worship team, thank you for leading us in that song and definitely led my heart in worship. Turn with me if you brought your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll get there in just a second. We're in a series, if you happen to be visiting with us, a, a short series on the church. And we've been asking for the last four or five weeks, what does faithfulness look like in a church? We may know what faithfulness looks like in a marriage, or we know what faithfulness looks like in a friendship, or we know what faithfulness looks like as parents try to be faithful to their children. But what does the Bible say faithfulness looks like in, a, in, the, in the context of a local congregation or in the church? I was reminded this week, studying, preparing for what faithfulness looks like, of just how many analogies are used in the New Testament for the church. Now, without mentioning any, can you, can you think, think through what you know of the New Testament, what pictures or analogies are used to represent the church? An analogy is, is an illustration you throw out that helps get a better grasp of the reality. I remember talking to a college student one time that was just years ago, head over heels in love with the girl he was dating, and he was trying to convince me what that was like, like I had never been in love. Or <clears throat> and he, he, he finally said, he was throwing out these analogies, and he finally said, dating her is like, I mean, it's like a whirlwind. And I remember thinking, I wonder how many whirlwinds this kid's been in to even say that. And is that even a good thing if your dating relationship is a whirlwind? That was the best analogy he could come up with. Paul mentions several in the New Testament. Jesus mentions several analogies for what the church is. And it's just a, it's a picture you can throw alongside the church to help us get a grasp of what the church really is. The church is compared to a bride. And there's lots of truth bound up in that. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is compared to a building, each of us being a stone in that building brought together, an important stone. The church is compared to a temple where God actually brings his presence to live. We're a holy temple. The church is compared to a vine. Last week, we looked at a passage where the church is compared to a foundation and pillars that uphold the truth. We put truth on display. That's what the church does. That's one of our major assignments is to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. But probably the most common analogy ever used in the New Testament for what the church is, the picture that's thrown alongside it, is a picture of the body. In multiple places, Paul says the church is the body of Christ. And in our passage today, it's one of those where he tries to illustrate what the church is and what the church does and how we should behave and how we function when we're together and when we come in contact with each other and it is a picture of the church being a, a, a physical body. We are the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, there's a couple different approaches we could take to this passage today. I'll tell you which one I'm going to take. We could walk through it very slowly, and there are pastors who've done that that have taken weeks to preach through 1 Corinthians 12. 
that definitely has its benefit. You walk through it slowly, and, and you, in a sense, look at every tree in the forest. Today, I would rather us step back and just look at the forest. What are the major truths that come out of this passage on the church being the body of Christ? Now, I will invite you back tonight because there are a few of those trees in the forest that I think we should stop and actually take a longer look at. And tonight at 6.30, we'll do that. But this morning, I would like for us just to step back and look at the, what one author called, he said in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul makes some epic-making arguments. They are absolutely epic and you may be familiar enough with them that, that they don't register like that with you. There's a benefit to going slowly, and there's a benefit to taking the, the big view, and today we're just going to take the big view. I want us to think about what faithfulness looks like as we bring our gifts together as the church. So if you found 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to read it. As a little background, let me just remind you Paul is writing to a church that is very divided. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians at all or the church in Corinth, it is a very fragmented church. And I'll just pay you a compliment. I've said this before, but in the months that God has let Wendy and I be a part of Trinity, there doesn't seem to be any division. This seems to be a church that loves being together, and the unity God wants for a church seems evident in the way you treat each other. That could not be said about the church at Corinth. It is a very divided church. Before he even gets to chapter 12, Paul has to address some of that. In chapter 1, can you imagine writing an open, uh, opening a letter, chapter 1, and that you're writing to a church and you have to talk to them about factions? Chapter 1 is all about people saying, well, I follow this guy and I follow this guy and I follow this guy. And Paul says, you know what? In chapter 1, you're already defeated you're all divided up. In chapter 5, he has to talk to them about sexual sin in the church, and they're actually proud of it. Some of them think it ought to be dealt with, some of them don't, and there's this rampant sexual sin that he says is worse than even what's out in the world. When he gets to chapter, the end of chapter 6, he has to talk to them about lawsuits. They're so divided that there's actually some brothers who are threatening to sue other brothers in the church. And he says, how dare you as God's people go out into the lost world and ask lost people to settle your differences? How dare you sue another believer? But that's how divided they are. In chapter 11, he has to address them about how they take the Lord's Supper, and they're even divided on how they gather around the Lord's Supper. And they're not sharing. They're not enjoying the meal together. Some of them are actually getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. If you want a picture of a divided, fragmented, problem church, 1 Corinthians gives you that picture. So when he gets to chapter 12, he's finally wanting to talk to them about what it ought to look like. So chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts... Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. 
Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God may say Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there's a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there's a variety of activities or workings, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, the gift of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the workings of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. Yet to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the ability to interpret those tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Or if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker or indispensable, on those parts of the body that we might have less honor, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. For God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, then all rejoice together. Church, I have said for years to anybody that would listen, that salvation is, in fact, a triple gift. Here's what I mean by salvation being a triple gift. And you might argue there's more than three incredible gifts when a person comes to faith in Christ. But I think all of the gifts can fit under one of these three broad categories. When a person gives their life to Christ and becomes a believer, you get, number one, forgiveness. You get, number two, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. And number three, you get one of his abilities, one of his gifts. He gives you a gift that you're to bring and use at the church to build up and bless other people. All three of those happen at conversion. You get forgiveness. Maybe the main thing we think about when we want to get saved, God has convicted us and we feel guilty and we recognize our sin and there's no hope outside of Christ. That's the first part of the triple gift. Under it is all, 
all the things about being adopted into God's family and having his righteousness moved into our account and we're declared righteous all by faith. You have forgiveness. And then the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in you in a way that no Old Testament saint ever experienced. Permanently, you are now the temple of God. But also the third gift in the triple gift of salvation is God gave you a special endowment. God gave you a special ability. 1 Corinthians 12 is about that gift. What does faithfulness look like in a church when all of us come together with all these different abilities, all these different gifts, all these different talents, and we function as a body? That's what this passage is about. And here's what I hope to do. I, I want to give you six words this morning that we can kind of hang this passage on. This is the forest view, not the individual trees. What are some amazing truths that come out of this passage? And what does it tell us about what faithfulness looks like in a church? Now, the first two are just by way of introduction, so they're rather short. short. The, the first word I want to give you, if you want to jot them down, is the word confusion. Paul starts in verse 1 by saying, I, brothers, don't want you to be ignorant about the topic I'm about to talk to you about. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be confused. When Paul starts a chapter with, I don't want you to be confused, it is because there is a real possibility that God's people can be confused about this issue. There's a real possibility for ignorance. Did you know there's actually six places in the New Testament where Paul starts an argument by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant? This is one of the six. I thought it might be interesting to do a series sometimes on those six things that Paul begins by saying, listen, church, I don't want you to be uninformed. It could be a six-part series just entitled, Don't Be Stupid. <laughs> I, I really have thought maybe in the fall when all the college kids come back, we might start a short series. I mean, they're, they're given four years of their lives to gain an education. What are the ones that Paul says, don't be ignorant? Well, one of them has to do with spiritual gifts. And can we... Those of us that have been in the church long enough just admit that there is a sense in which lots of people are confused about spiritual gifts. What was meant to bring us together has sometimes caused great division in God's family. Now, I'll admit there are some gray areas. There are things that we wish we knew more about spiritual gifts than we know, but there is a big chunk that is very black and very white as you read through every passage that talks about spiritual gifts. The church needs to say on the black and white issues, this is what the Bible says, God's clear, and we just believe it. Instead, there's all kinds of confusion about the purpose of spiritual gifts and how they work in the church. People's spiritual gifts become a source of pride for them because they think they're really talented in one area and the church can't do without them. There's some people who feel inferior because of their gifts. There's people who feel superior from others because of their gifts. There's even some people who gauge how spiritual you are based on your gift. If you were really spiritual, you'd have this gift. And because you don't have this gift, you must not be as spiritual as me. What was meant to be a blessing to God's people and build us up has sometimes in the body of Christ become a problem. So Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. This is a, this is a chapter about eliminating ignorance. The second word I'll give you is the word trinity. I'm not mentioning that word because I'm preaching at a church that's called Trinity Baptist Church. That would be too self-serving. But you might read this chapter too quickly and not notice something. Look again at verse 4. 
Paul uses three different words to describe how vast the giftedness is in the church. He's not trying to limit how God might gift you. So he says in verse 4, there's a variety of gifts. He says in verse 5, there's a variety of services. And he says in verse 6, there's a variety of activities or powers. He says, I don't care if you want to call how God gifted you gifts or your service to the church or your ministry to the church or your activity in the church. he's, He's taking a wide view of spiritual gifts. But in doing so, he mentions all three persons in the Trinity. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there's a variety of workings or activities or powers, but the same God. This is one of the Trinitarian passages in the New Testament church. There are places in the New Testament where God mentions God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all within a couple of verses. While the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, there are passages that bring all three persons of the Godhead together. I, I read this, and I think this. What is God's involvement in his church like? And I want to tell you how involved God is. We get all of him. We get all of him. His involvement in the church is so complete that at the beginning of this chapter, talking about how we bring all of our different gifts to the church to bless and build each other up, Paul says, I want to remind you of something. The Father's involved, the Lord, the Son is involved, and the Spirit is involved. We desperately, listen, we need to be a church that says, I may not fully theologically be able to explain one God in three persons. I believe it by faith. And I want to embrace God's involvement in this church, his complete involvement. His Holy Spirit being active, his Son being active, and God the Father being active. We pray, God, for your total involvement in this church. The church is loved by the Father, purchased by the Son, and purified by the Spirit. We need all of them working in us. So confusion and trinity are the introductory words. Now, what I'm going to say are maybe the the four biggest giants in the forest, the four biggest trees that just fall out of this passage. So the third word I would give you is the word sovereignty. I want to take just a minute on the word sovereignty. Church, when you, when you got saved, you received that triple gift of forgiveness and God's Holy Spirit coming to dwell in you and your unique ability or gift that you're supposed to bring to the church to build us up. You did not get to pick your gift. Look at verse 11 and then verse 18. These are the two that make it the clearest. In verse 11, he says, all these empowerments, all these gifts that God gives... They're by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individual as he wills. In verse 18, says it a little differently, but it's the exact same truth. In verse 18, he says, But it is God who arranges the members of the body, each one of them, as he chooses. Listen, one of the marks of a faithful church is God's people coming together and saying, uh, under the sovereignty of God willing and God choosing, he distributes his gifts. 
Church, I've told you this before, but there's a reason why I'll never be asked to participate in the first half of our service. Okay? It is because God willed it. My part in the first half of the service is to worship with all my heart as quietly as I can so that nobody else gets distracted. There is no other explanation for why someone could be so non-musical as I am. I recognize good worship music. I can have nothing to do in producing it. And you know what? You just have to get to the place where you say, God, that had to be your choice. That had to be your will. Years ago, I watched the other three members of our family in a church service get up, all three with a mic, and lead in worship and sing a trio. I knew it would never be four of us. I mean, when I say that three people sing and it's a trio, I've told you all I know about music, that three people make a trio. I've I've limited what I know about music. It'll never be four of us. So God arranged some and totally left me out. Let, Let me ask you, when you read the verses that said God hands them out just as he wills and just as he chooses, are you to the place where you can be content with that? Where a church can rest in that? And say, God, if you had wanted me to excel at that, you would have given me some gifts in that, and you didn't. And church, what this does when we, when we rest in the sovereignty of God and how he apportions gifts, is it, it keeps us from having to compare. I, I, don't have to, I don't have to do what you do in the church. Because you're the gift, you're the eye or the ear or the foot or the hand that's supposed to do that. So I can rest in how he's gifted me and not compare myself with you. And, and I can be thrilled when you excel at your gift without there being any comparison or any competition. I, I want you to be the most incredible hand you can be because I'm not one or ear or eye. Can we read a passage like this and say, in a faithful church, there's this confidence that God will give us what we need when we need it. He'll give us the gifted men and women that we need and he gives the specific gifts to the specific people. Our job then is not to compare ourselves to other people's gifts, is to take whatever gifts God's given us and max them out. Listen, if I'm not a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear, whatever I am, I just need to be the best at that I can be. I need to max out my gifts. And I recognize in the Bible that God doesn't even gift all hands the same or all eyes the same. Jesus told parables about there being some people who received one talent or three talents or five talents or ten talents. There are, there are different giftedness. Can we get to the place where I say, God, I, I'm only responsible to you for my gifts. I will give an account for how I used my gifts in the church. And if all I did was come and attend and I never served, I never gave, I never contributed, I never, I'll give an account to God. I will not give an account to God for your gifts. I will just give an account to God for my gifts and whether I was a good steward with my gifts. This is, this is Paul's version of John 3, 8. If you remember Jesus staying up late one night with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was talking about, how can a guy be born again? How can I? And Jesus says this, the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit has to move into your life, has to blow into your life. And then in John 3, 8, he says this, listen, the Spirit blows wherever he wishes. 
Paul's version of that in 1 Corinthians 12 is when it comes to handing out gifts, he gives them wherever he wishes. Can we just come to the place where we say every gift of God is a good gift and every gift of God is meant for the common good. However he's gifted me, it's for your good. However he's gifted you is for my good. But I can't read this passage without seeing that one of the mighty trees in this forest is the sovereignty of God handing out gifts however he chooses. The fourth word I would give you is the word unity. This may be the central theme of 1 Corinthians 12. This is a chapter about unity in the church. Look at verse 12 and 13 again, and notice how many times he uses the word one. Verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were baptized into one body, Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, I don't care, all of us were made to drink one spirit. Listen, he, in a couple of verses, he's like, listen, you're one, 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 one. You're indivisible. You may be many members, many gifts, a lot of different talents come into a church family, but you are only one body. Over and over, it's one, one, one. And he even says, listen, the two greatest dividers in the first century, as he's writing this, the two greatest dividers would be a person's race and a person's social status. And he says, I don't care what your race is. I don't care if you're Jew or Gentile. And your social status, I don't care if you're a free man or a slave. You could be a Gentile free man, and I could be a Jewish slave, and we can still have unity in Christ because we're one. He drives home the point again down in verse 25. He says, God has composed the body, in verse 24, to give honor to the parts that lack it. Verse 20, 25, so that there may be no division in the body. How much division does he want? No division. We are one, 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 so that there's no division. Guys, part of what happens when God's people want faithfulness displayed in their church is they recognize all of their own giftedness and they bring those gifts to the body, trusting God sovereignly put the gifts where he wants them, and then those gifts promote unity because we come together as, as one family, one body, and there are no divisions. Let me ask the question, and this is one of the things we're going to go a little deeper on tonight. But according to Paul, what is the basis of our unity? What is the basis of the body's unity? What makes us one? His answer comes in verse 13 when he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized, and we were all made to drink one spirit. And without getting bogged down too much in that this morning, here's what he's saying. Regardless of how different our backgrounds are, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, when you came to Christ, you had this extraordinary, can't even describe it in words, experience with God's Spirit. 
you, you were baptized in that spirit. You were flooded with that spirit. You were made to drink that spirit. You had this extraordinary experience with the spirit of God, and it overcomes all of the differences in our background. That is the basis of Paul's unity in 1 Corinthians 12. God's Holy Spirit has come and impacted your life, and God's Holy Spirit has come and impacted my life, and because of that, we can be one. One body, one spirit, one family, because of one shared experience. Church, I actually think sometimes we downplay the part that the Holy Spirit plays when a person initially comes to Christ. It is one of the epic-making arguments Paul makes in this chapter. God's Holy Spirit, his involvement in your life changes everything. If you have experienced the life-giving love and power of God's Spirit, and I have experienced the life-giving love and power of God's Spirit, you and I can come together. I have this fear, church, that many modern churches today, because of our lack of submitting to the Spirit of God in our lives, because of his lack of involvement in our churches, because of our lack of bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, because of our lack of surrendering to the Spirit, it has left us trying to build unity based on other things. We're trying to find other ground on which to find unity in the church rather than the Spirit. And I actually started to make out a long list of those things that we try to find common ground on. And none of them are mentioned in this passage. It's fine if we share common hobbies, but that's not ultimately where our unity comes from. Our unity comes from this extraordinary experience I had with the Spirit of God, and you had the same experience when you became a Christian, and it changes everything. Unity is all through 1 Corinthians 12. Do you know why you know why there are some of those men, I've read some of their stories, the men who lived through the awful battle on the beaches of Normandy in World War II. Do you know why some of those men stayed so close for their whole lives? I mean, they're old men and they're still close. It's because they had a shared, extraordinary experience. And they have stayed close ever since that experience. We also have an extraordinary shared experience. The infinite, gracious, holy God of heaven has sent his spirit into my life. The unity gets very practical in verse 25 and 26, so let me just point these out and we'll get to the last two words. In verse 25, in talking about the unity, he says, so that there may be no division in the body. God does not want a divided church. Remember, Paul's writing to a divided church he had to start in chapter 1 by talking about how divided they were. God wants no division. Then he gives them three examples of that. But that the members may have equal concern for each other. They may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, then all suffer. And if one member is honored, then all are honored. He says, listen, there's so much unity. There should be so much unity in the body of Christ that there is equal concern for everybody. We have equal care. It doesn't matter if you're old or young, our care for you is the same. 
It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or not so wealthy, our care for you is the same. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, our care, our concern, our shared love for you is the same. This knocks down all... It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, a slave or a free person. None of that matters in the church. Our unity is so strong that we have equal shared concern for all parts of the body. Then he says that the unity is so much so that if one part suffers, all parts suffer. Now, church, we get that example with our body. The analogy he's throwing down of our body, we get that. If one part suffers, all suffer. If you you had an absolutely splitting toothache, I mean, like the kind that just breathing, just the air passing over the tooth just sends you into orbit. It's throbbing. I mean, toothaches are one of those things. You have one of those toothaches, and I say to you, you know what? Your tooth is like less than 1% of your body. So get over it. And let's go play tennis this afternoon. Or let's go eat ice cream. It's just, it's less than 1%. And you say, listen, you can say, when your stomach's sick, you can either say, my stomach's sick, or you can say, I'm sick. You can make it individual, or it's your whole body. In the body of Christ, if one part suffers, it affects every one of us. That's how much unity we have. Listen, I, I mean, I can honestly say this. I'll use for an example. On a scale of 1 to 10, I can't have a 10-day if Wendy's having a 2-day. I can't. Love her too much. What if I could get to the place where I can't have a 10-day if any of you are having a 2-day? Because if you suffer, I suffer. That's how, that's how tight we are in God's family. It affects the whole body Two weeks ago, when Silas and my brother and I had a chance to go hike in Colorado, we were partway up the mountain, and, and my brother was like, hey, we got, we got to stop. I need a break. And I started asking him, I was like, what, what is it? I mean, is it your feet? Is it blisters? No. I mean, is it your knees? You're, you're, getting, you're getting older. And he's like, <laughs> I mean, he, he had pointed out that everybody else on the trail was half our age. So I was already about to leave him. I was kind of irritated. But he's like, I need a break. I was like, is is it this? Is it that? Is it? And he said, no, it, it's my lungs. God didn't put enough oxygen up here at 14,000 feet. Listen, when, you, when your lungs say we're suffering, your whole body stops. And so he says, listen, there's equal care and concern. That's how united you are. And if one part suffers, you all feel it. Now, the interesting part he ends with on talking about unity is he says, if one part is honored, all the parts rejoice. It's interesting to me, I'm one that believes every word in the Bible matters. When he says, if one part suffers, he comes back with the exact same word and says, all parts suffer. But when he says, when one part is honored, he doesn't say everybody gets honor. He says, if one part is honored, then everybody else just rejoices. Listen, if God blesses you or honors you, or I, I don't have to have a part in that honor. I can be in the background just rejoicing in your honor. I can just be rejoicing in your good fortune and in, in the providence of God in your life. If you suffer, I'll suffer. But if you're honored, I don't have to jump up with you and get honored with you. I just stand in the background sharing in your joy. That's the kind of unity the church has. So, God's sovereignty plays a huge part in a faithful church and 
the unity that it creates. Let me get these last two words in. The fifth word I'd give you is the word dependence. The word dependence. Because of how God created the body, your body personally and the body of Christ, he designed it on purpose so that we are dependent on each other. Now, I want you to see two differences here on the word dependence. Look at verse 14. There's, there's two different mistakes made here, and they are different. In verse 14, he says there could be this chance that the body can consists not of one member but many. There's many of us. And here's one possibility. The foot might could say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. But he says that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. You can say that, but it's not true. You can say it, but it's a lie. The foot can say about the foot, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. Or the ear could say, in verse 16, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body. What you have in those verses is a part of the body of Christ saying, because I'm not something else, I don't think I have much that the church needs. It's, it's a person, now watch this, it's a part of the body opting himself out. He's opting himself out of service. Because I'm just a foot, because I'm just an ear, I don't have that much that you need. Because I'm not a whatever, I don't have that much that you need. And this is a person opting themselves out. Look at verse 21. You have something different happening here. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And again, the foot, I mean the head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. What you have in this part is a part of the body opting somebody else out. At the beginning, you have a part of the body opting themselves out. Here you have a part of the body saying, I'm going to opt you out. Because of what I am in the body, whatever that is, I don't need you. One is inferior, I don't have much to offer, so I'm not needed. The other is superior, because of how important I am, I don't need you. Two different things. And Paul won't have any of it. He won't stand for any of it. God so designed the body of Christ that we are dependent on each other. I need you. And whether you like it or not, the group on this side needs the group on this side. And the group in the middle needs both. And I need all three. You can't opt yourself out and you can't opt anybody else out. We're totally dependent. The argument is our diversity makes us dependent. This is a chapter about unity, but it's also a chapter about diversity. You don't have to be like me. What you bring to the body is different. And I need what you bring. If you're a hand, listen to me, if you're a hand, I need you to love being a hand. And I need you to be a functioning hand. And I need you to be content being a hand. And I need you to have joy being a hand. And I need you to excel at being a hand. Because I'm not a hand. But if you are, you're what we need. Listen, no one gets all the gifts for a reason. When you look through, there's four lists in the New Testament of different spiritual gifts. I don't think they're exhaustive. None of the four lists are the same. 
I think Paul's just given us some off the top of his head as he thinks of them. And we're, we're going we're gonna to look at those tonight just briefly. But there's about 20 total listed in the New Testament. Nobody gets all 20. God designed it so that nobody gets all of them so that we all need each other. There are no one-member churches. Please hear me. There are no one-member churches. The body doesn't work like that. And I'll just tell you, because it's, it's a trend right now moving. You know what's wrong with people who stay at home and just watch a church on TV? Or they watch a church online, and they say, that's my church. I don't have to get up. I don't have to go anywhere. I've got the preacher I like. And I'm for listening to great preaching. It, but that's not your church. The problem with that is the only, the only gifts you're benefiting from are the people on stage at that church you're watching on TV. Their gifts are the only ones you're benefiting from. And nobody's benefiting from your gifts. Nobody's benefiting from your gifts because you're a church of one watching another church. And there are no churches of one. We are, we are very dependent on each other. So you see God's sovereignty, you see his plea for unity in the church, and you see that we are dependent. And I'll end with this because I'm out of time. The last word I'd give you is the word contribution. We're so dependent on each other because everyone has something significant to contribute. God loves unity, but he also loves diversity. And in his sovereign gift to you, he gave you a certain ability in the church so that you could contribute. Please listen to me. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, no one is giftless. Over and over in this chapter, Paul says, to each one he gave, to each one he gave, nobody's giftless. In verse 7, he says, To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit to be used for the common good. He's saying, listen, God gave you a gift that puts the Spirit of God on display. That's a manifestation of the Spirit. Last week we talked about how the church puts truth on display. The church also puts the Spirit on display, the Holy Spirit of God. And God gave you a gift that helps us put God's Spirit on display. And it's for the common good. I don't know if you guys realize this, because some people get um, confused about spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gift, however God gifted you, if you're a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear in the body of Christ, however he gifted you, your gift is not for you. Your gift's not even about you. I, I don't want to say this selfishly, but your gift is for me. You're supposed to bring your gift to the body of Christ, whatever you are, and bless the rest of us with it. Build the rest of the church up with your gift. A hand's not a hand just to be a hand. A hand is to be a hand for the whole body. Your gift's not about you, and your gift's not for you. Your gift was given so you would have something to come and, and give it away. Give it away generously. Give it away powerfully. Give it away with joy. Bring your gift, whatever it is and contribute to the whole body of Christ. 
two chapters later, in chapter 14, when Paul's talking about gifts, he says, strive to excel in building up the church. Whatever gift you have, it was given so that you could be a part of making the church strong. I'm glad you attend church, but if that's all you do, it's not enough. We need you to contribute. I'll end by saying it this way. God doesn't need you. Let me see if I can thread this needle because I think the Bible threads this needle and I'll probably fail in my attempt to say this. There, there is the possibility if you tell somebody over and over how important they are and you are important to the body of Christ, I don't care your age, I don't care what your gift is, there are no spare parts. However God gifted you, you're to bring that to the body and you are important. If you don't believe you're important, just try to, try to function this week without your feet working or without your hands working or without your eyes working. The analogy of, of us being the body of Christ fits. So you tell people over and over, and it's true, you are critical, you are important, you are valuable. And there's a tendency in the world, if you tell people that long enough, it goes to their head. It brings pride. Well, Doug told me over and over, I'm important. And he based it on the Bible. And it's true. But somehow in God's economy, he can tell us over and over and over again how important we are. And it doesn't go to our head, it just goes to our heart. And it doesn't make me proud or arrogant. I'm, I'm keenly aware how dependent I am. I, God, God doesn't need you. Because God lacks for nothing. God, God doesn't need Doug in his body. God could remove Doug from the body of Christ and replace Doug with ten other Dougs, all of them ten times better than Doug, and the body of Christ would be better. God doesn't need Doug. God doesn't need you. But I do. I need you. And the people in this room need you. They need you to contribute. And you may still be trying to figure out, I'm not even sure how I'm gifted. I, I don't know what my gift is. I don't know what my unique contribution to the church is. And, and it may be part of God teaching you and showing you what that is. What, what is it you bring that helps build us up? But the rest of us need you to contribute your giftedness. Please don't slip in, sit down, slip out as fast as you can, and not contribute. Find a way to serve. And you may say, you know what, I, I could come to Skylar and say, all right, I'll... I think my gift is this. And he may say, you know, we don't have a vacancy right there right now. And that doesn't mean you just stop. Go find somewhere to use your gift. Like, I, I think I ought to teach kids. And we're like, well, we don't have a vacancy for that. Then find some kids and teach them in your neighborhood. I mean, it doesn't have to be on Sundays here that you use your gift. I, I think my gift is, is evangelism. I can share my faith. But everybody at church is saved. Then find someone to share your faith with. It doesn't have to be right here. The body functions seven days a week. This is a chapter about confusion, wanting to eliminate it. It's a chapter about the Trinity and his involvement in the church. It's a chapter about sovereignty and God apportioning his gifts where he wants. It's a, gift about, it's a chapter about unity and our striving to be one like a body. It's a gift about dependence and our willingness to admit we depend on each other. We need each other. And it's a gift about contribution and making an eternal contribution in the body of Christ.
That is the forest view of 1 Corinthians 12. And faithful churches are living it out. And I pray that we will. Let me pray for us. Father, it's, uh, it's too much, I suppose, I feel right now, to try to look at 1 Corinthians 12 in just one snapshot. But I, I didn't want us to get bogged down in some of the details and the questions. And they're all important, but God, the encouragement part of this chapter to me is, is the epic-making arguments that, that Paul is stating to the church about how we live together and love together and function together and serve together. I pray maybe even tonight as we try to take a look at a few more of the details that we would find those encouraging and interesting and maybe even help shore up our doctrine and know what we believe. But this morning, God, I pray you would move on our hearts to want, to want in our hearts, earnestly want, to excel at building up the church. Faithfulness in the church looks like 1 Corinthians 12. It looks like every part doing his or her part to the glory of God. God, if there's somebody here this morning that would hear this and maybe because of your amazing spirit that blows where he wants, has convicted someone here this morning that they're not really a part of the body of Christ. They never experienced the triple gift of salvation. Maybe during this last song they could grab me or someone else they know and just say, I, I would like to know the gift of salvation purchased for me at the cross. But God, for those of us that are Christians, would you move on our hearts and say it's time for us to move on. It's time for us to demonstrate, to put the Spirit on display in our church, to show the world what a body looks like that has this kind of unity and dependence and trust in the sovereignty of God. Make us... Make Trinity Baptist Church all you want us to be as the body of Christ. And it is in the head's name, Jesus Christ, the head of the body. It's in his name we pray. Amen.